You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. When I was a pastor in the Twin Cities, uh, one of my responsibilities as a pastor on a larger staff was to be the outreach pastor, so outreach of local and global missions. It's one of my several duties. Outreach um, included the endeavors that would take place, say, when I traveled overseas. And in the first year of being on staff, a team of people and I I traveled to Bolivia to visit an orphanage and to visit a a young lady whom we supported who was working at that orphanage year over year. Um, Some of you may know the name. Her name is Lily. And I know that I've used her as an example in previous sermons. For several years in Bolivia, this faithful young lady served to God. She cared for orphans with love and compassion, love and passion that comes from Christ and just flowing through her. Uh, She is the type of person, and I've said this before, and Sharice knows this, she's the type of person I would like my girls to grow up to be like. If they're not going to be like Sharice, go be like Lily. I mean that. Fast forward several years, and um, Lily left the orphanage and returned to the United States, and she did come back with tears. She loved those kids, but she knew God was calling her away from that orphanage. She came back to the States to figure out what's next. But here's the deal. She came back feeling called to Bolivia. (laughs) She left Bolivia, came back to the United States, felt called to go back to Bolivia and to serve God by telling others about Jesus. She didn't know how she would get back to Bolivia. She simply knew God had called her to Bolivia. She was willing to give up everything to God in order to serve God. While Lily was in the States, I had the privilege of walking alongside her and a few others to help facilitate an organization that is now doing great work called Anchor of Hope. The ministry is healthy and flourishing to this day. Lily now is living in Bolivia, serving God by reaching kids on the streets in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Now, why am I highlighting her? As I was reflecting on Paul's journey between Jerusalem to Rome, it occurred to me Lily and Paul have one thing, perhaps other things, but one thing in common that I want to highlight. Both had a clear call to serve God in a land that was not their own, and they both were going to give up whatever it takes to walk out God's calling for their life. For Christ and his kingdom, Lily and Paul knew that the journey between point A and point B would require walking forward into the unknown. And yes, when I wrote that, I realized there's a song called that. (laughs) Compare this to your life, right? So much of my life, talk about me, is planned and choreographed. There is a desperate desire to what to know what the next step is and to be the one to facilitate the next step. I'm a very calendared person. I'm not saying planning your day is bad, but we tend to have a hard time giving up control of our lives to God. Paul and Lily did not know how they would arrive at their destination, but God called them to step forward in faith. The calling of Paul and Lily is is just not unusual. This is actually part and parcel of the Christian life. 
God calls us to step out in faith at times to go somewhere, even though the path does not seem clear. Or when you look and you're like, I can't believe that's actually the path forward, God. Another biblical example comes to mind regarding this. Abraham, going back to Genesis. He was living in Haran and was called by God to pack up his belongings, pack up his family. And God was saying, I want you to go to Canaan. Where? It means that place where I've never been to? It's not like you can Google it and look up pictures of, you know, all the houses in Canaan. No. Abraham knew he was called by God, so he packed up everything, including his family, and he went. You know, these days when we move locations, we visit that location several times to confirm that's the place we want to go to, but not with Abraham. God's calling was enough for him. And what is a common denominator for Lily, Paul, Abraham, and a whole host of others who have given up everything to follow Christ? What is a common denominator? Faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is how and why regular people give up everything for the kingdom of Christ. It's faith in God in the face of what is unknown. It's a radical faith to serve Christ no matter the cost. It's a faith in God to take radical steps that might not make sense to the rest of the world. The logic of the kingdom of Christ is not always congruent with the logic of the world because of our faith in God. In Acts 25 and through the beginning of Acts 28, we see Paul making his way from Jerusalem to Rome under Roman guard. You might remember Acts 24 when Paul was on trial, but the Roman rulers acknowledged Paul had done nothing wrong, right? The accusations against Paul are religious and theological, and if Pax Romana means, which means, you know, Roman peace, if that's maintained, you know, the Romans are like, fine, he's good. They didn't care about Jewish quabbles with Paul. Well, Paul did something that might have seemed foolish, but was strategic. He appealed his case to the emperor. It's like, come on, what are you doing? As a Roman citizen, this was his right. He could have laid down that right, but he used that right in this particular situation. He had the right to a fair trial. In a sense, Paul appeals to our version of what would be like the Supreme Court. But here's the deal. If Paul would have just kept his mouth Shut. If you're just like, Paul, why did you need to speak? You know what would have happened to Paul? He would have been set free. I just think, Paul, what are you doing? You could be set free, man. But Paul isn't concerned about his physical freedom. He felt called to the then most fantastic city in that part of the world, at the very least, the most powerful city in that part of the world. And he was going to go even if under the auspice of the Roman guard. The reason why Paul wanted to go to Rome is evident from Acts, right? He was bent on taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's how, that's how Acts 1 just opens up. He's going to preach and help plant churches. Rome is simply the next step in his mission. It's likely Paul actually made his way to Spain sometime after that. That's what's speculated. So he's, he's going. But how did Paul arrive in Rome? We know the why, but how? 
Well, when Paul appealed to be tried in Rome, he certainly did not know the steps that were going to be taken in order to arrive in Rome. By faith, he was following God. That's all that mattered. I had this passing thought reflecting on the end of the book of Acts. And if you're going to make a movie out of the content of the book of Acts, we've got 28 chapters. If you're going to make a movie out of it, it would be like these last four chapters. It's packed with action. You have a man living by conviction and faith, walking in the most unlikely trials, but he pushes through the adversity and eventually arrives in Rome. So here's the most concise explanation that I could come up with about how how Paul arrived in Rome from Acts 25 to 28. So buckle up, it's going to go quick. Here we go. Acts 25. Paul's now in Caesarea, off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Festus, the one who took over Felix in Judea, right? Paul was on trial in front of Felix. Felix is removed. Now we have Festus. Now he's the one in charge of Judea. He takes Paul's case just up the governmental ladder. Paul's in face-to-face with Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. This is a big deal because Agrippa is a big deal. Agrippa is the guy the emperor puts in charge over this large swath of land. Okay, so perhaps Acts 25 isn't the most action-packed chapter in Acts, but it sets up what we read in Acts 28. Here are the cliff notes for Acts 26. Excuse me, Acts 26. In Acts 26, we have in verse 1, Agrippa allows Paul to speak for himself. So he's finally in front of Agrippa. He's the next guy up. And I think Agrippa enables Paul to speak with personal interest. Paul speaking before Agrippa would be like me speaking before the President of the United States. I want to use my words and times and my time with the Vice President of the United States very wisely. What does Paul say? He begins to give a defense of the accusations leveled against him because he grew up Jewish and spent part of his life persecuting the very people that he now was a part of. But then in verse 6 and 8, Paul lays out the issue at hand again. Here's how he explains the issue. Acts 26, verse 6 to 8. And I'm pointing your attention here for a particular reason. This is what it says. And now I stand on trial, Paul says, because of my, we've run into this word so many times in the book of Acts. It's amazing. I did not catch this in my initial reading of Acts. I'm on trial because of my, there's that word again, hope. Hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this, here's the word again, Hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If you're a Christian and you've been tracking along in the last three chapters in Acts, and you're not convinced that hope in your future bodily erection from the dead because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a big deal, then you got to go back and reread Acts 23, Acts 24, Acts 25, Acts 26, 1 Corinthians 15. Like, this is highlighted over and over and over again. It's highlighted so much at the end of the book of Acts, I'm shocked by it. It's a big deal. Because your hope or eager expectation and a future bodily resurrection is huge. As we've said in previous sermons, your hope in the future impacts how you live right now. 
Now back to the story in Acts 26. After Paul lays out the theological issue at hand, he once again gives his testimony again. This is the third time in Acts Paul gives his testimony. So take note, Christian. Your testimony about what God has done to you is crucial. It's absolutely crucial. Your testimony about God pouring out his saving grace on your life is a big deal. I think I preached at least two sermons on the importance of giving a testimony about God's grace and mercy impacting your life and what that means for you right now. So Paul gives his testimony again. And then Paul, verse 20, had the audacity to tell Agrippa that he, after being rejected by the Jews, is to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. In particular, Paul says the Gentiles need to repent and turn to God. The message to Agrippa would have been jarring because he considered him a Gentile. Agrippa is a Gentile. So in, in a roundabout way, Paul is saying to Agrippa, you need to repent and turn to God. Paul ends his bold speech with these words in Acts 26, verse 29. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become just as I am, except for these chains. Except for these chains that I'm wearing right now around my feet and my wrists, I pray that you would be a Christian. Paul desires Agrippa to be a Christian along with everyone else listening. The chapter ends with Agrippa with a twinge of, I think, compassion or curiosity at the very least, acknowledging the judicial system requires Paul's case to move on to Rome. Now, Acts 26 is more than window dressing for the action found in uh, chapters 27 and 28, but it is consistent with what we see throughout church history. Christianity is always on trial, but the trial is also a gospel opportunity. All right, that's Acts 25, 26, now Acts 27. Acts 27 opens with Paul finally on a ship headed toward Italy. For all of this talk about getting to Rome, we're finally in Acts 27 and he's boarding a ship. And here's where the action does pick up. From Caesarea, they take a ship north to Sidon. From Sidon, they travel west, but the weather was not helping. They traveled slowly along the coastline, mitigating the risk that comes from sailing through the open waters of the Mediterranean Sea, which is interesting because I've been reading this book. It's basically, uh, it's called An Army at Dawn, and it spends a lot of time about the coastlines in the Mediterranean Sea. It's about the American uh, World War II trying to go, trying to make, uh, go through uh, North Africa, excuse me, and the Navy's constantly being pushed back by these massive waves on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. And here we see Paul and his ship traveling along the coastline. I couldn't imagine what that was like. Their ships arrive at a small port called Fair Havens on the island of Crete. That's where they end up. The weather is getting worse, and Paul advises the pilot of the ship to, hey, maybe we should wait here. Let's not go. The weather's really bad, but the pilot doesn't listen. Everyone is to get back on board and set sail. It was not long after setting sail that the storm comes upon the ship. The ship begins to take a beating. All of a sudden, lives are at stake. Eventually, the crew began to throw the cargo overboard. And this kind of reminds me of Jonah, except it has a different outcome. The next day, to lighten the ship even more, the crew threw the ship's tackle overboard. And this would be equivalent to driving a car without a steering wheel. 
Food was scarce, everyone was depressed, death was knocking at the door for the entire crew. And then in verse, 20, verse 21, Paul begins to exhort everyone, they have hope, he uses that word again. But whether the crew took Paul's words to heart, we do not know. 14 days of being driven by the sea, God providentially causes a shipwreck on the island of Malta. Now that's something you don't hear every day. God providentially causes a shipwreck. And as Paul mentioned earlier to the crew, every single person on that ship would be saved and everyone on that ship was able to put their feet on firm ground. But there's one slight problem when they got to Malta at the end of chapter 27. The ship appears to be useless. Acts 28, verses 1 to 16. The island of Malta is new territory for Paul, but the natives demonstrated kindness to Paul and his crew, which is kind of amazing. Who are these people? Let's be nice to them. They started a fire for him. And then everyone was hanging out around the fire, and a viper bit Paul's hand. The ESV says the viper latched onto Paul's hand. The natives all thought Paul was going to die. They thought because Paul was bitten by a snake that he deserved to die, like he had a demon of some sort, right? They've seen this before. No one comes back after being bitten by a viper. But Paul shook off the viper, and the natives waited and waited and waited for the poison to affect Paul, but to no avail. The viper bite did not affect Paul, which seems like a miracle because it is a miracle. All of a sudden, the natives began to consider Paul some sort of God. He survived the very thing that, he, that everyone else there thought he would die of. Paul is then introduced to the top dog of the natives, the chief, Publius. And Paul stays with him for three days. Now, you might think that the storm, the shipwreck, and the viper is enough action in a story to make a movie. And you'd be right, but there's more. The chief's father got sick. Paul lays hands on him and healed him. Word spread, and everyone on the island came to Paul for healing. It's amazing. After three months, the crew left Malta, finally making the last leg of the journey to Rome. There are several more stops, but no more storms or vipers are recorded. Like, when you just read it, you're just like, all of this happened? Wow. What happened that wasn't recorded? <laughs> Talk about facing adversity when trying to arrive at a destination. When Paul left Caesarea, he did not know what he would encounter. We know why Paul wanted to go to Rome, but the how involved countless unpredictable trials. Again, if you need an idea for a Hollywood movie, this could be the title. Paul's Journey to Rome, subtitle, Shipwrecks and Vipers. It's like, wow. For all the effect of taking the gospel to Jerusalem, Acts 1, to Rome, Acts 28, relatively little ink is spilled describing Paul's time in Rome, which might be surprising when you consider prior to Paul going to Rome, he wrote the book of Romans from the city of Corinth, his great systematic theology, basically, of what it means to be saved. However, we're only left with 17 verses about his actual time in Rome. How can we characterize Paul's time in Rome? I think it can be described with one word. Jesus. Now, I know this seems like the Sunday school answer to everything. 
but that doesn't make it untrue. And sometimes I wonder if we need to apply the Sunday school answer to our life a little bit more or a whole lot more. Jesus is the reason why he went to Rome and why he's in Rome. We can ask that same question about our lives. Is Jesus the reason why dot, dot, dot? Jesus being the reason Paul is in Rome is quite profound. Paul is in Rome for Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Jesus and his good news of salvation is the reason why Paul was willing to risk his life. While Paul was in Rome, he highlights why it's all about Jesus. He knows it's all about Jesus. Now he wants to highlight to everyone else why it's about Jesus. When Paul arrives in Rome, he asks to meet with the Jewish leaders, which seems like an odd request because the Jews in Jerusalem wanted him dead. And now he's like, let's go get the Jews who are in Rome. Bring them to me. I want to talk to them. But it is clear that these blue-collar Jews in Rome do not have the same mentality as the intellectual Jews of Jerusalem, right? And that's where you can have all the intellectuals in Judaism because he got the temple. Paul gives a download to the Jews in Rome about what happened in Jerusalem and why he is now a prisoner in Rome. And then he says in verse 20 of Acts 28, For this reason, therefore, I have asked you to see, to see you and speak with you, since it is because, here's that word again, the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. In Jerusalem, Paul connected hope with a future bodily resurrection. But now he says he is in chains because he was preaching about the hope of Israel. So in verse 20, I do not think hope is necessarily connected to the future bodily resurrection of Jesus or or our future resurrection of the dead. That's not Paul's primary point. I think Paul is actually talking about Jesus. Jesus is the only hope for Israel. Yes, Paul quibbled with the Jews over the resurrection, but it all traces back to Jesus for Paul. If they would read and interpret their Old Testament correctly, they would know this. Like, guys, if you just read your Bible, you'd see this for yourself. I I do want to observe Paul's attitude as we've traced his life throughout Acts. And again, it can be highlighted with that word, hope. You know, especially in these final few chapters. Like, what was his perspective? He He was hopeful. Paul endured pain and suffering and did not complain. And I'm not saying he was not tempted to complain. Or there, there are moments that are not recorded that where he may have complained. Paul is not sinless. He is not Jesus. But we see Paul uses his suffering to encourage others and point them to Jesus. I think we see, have seen how Paul uses his circumstances as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel as opposed to him seeing his situation as a problem. I mean, that is a change in mentality. I mean, too often we complain about our problems instead of seeing our problems as an opportunity to talk about our Lord. Even in verse 20, Paul says he's in chains. Now, he's not looking to induce pity, I don't think, but to show the reality of following Jesus. This is what it could look like to follow Christ. Paul isn't a victim of his circumstances, but he serves a victorious Savior. His hope in Christ prevents him from viewing himself as a victim. We are never a victim of our circumstances, 
But we serve the victorious Savior. We serve a Savior who gives us hope for the present and the future. The hope of Israel is the hope also for the entire world. So having a biblical perspective of hope is so crucial to helping you live your life in the present regardless of your circumstances. Now in addition to hope, the other phrase that I've been hammering home since Acts 1 shows up twice in Acts 28. Paul is all about explaining and proclaiming the kingdom of God, verse 23 and verse 28. Now you might be surprised that the phrase, the kingdom of God, only appears six times throughout the book of Acts. So why accent the kingdom of God over and over? Now here's why. The phrase not be, might not be explicitly stated, but it is clearly seen. Even in the Old Testament, the phrase is rare, but we know that what God's kingdom looks like. The same with the New Testament and the books of in the book of Acts. Now here's how one professor, uh, Derek Thomas, describes the kingdom of God in Acts. He says this, Christ is the king who has come by way of the promise made in the Old Testament scriptures. He comes to rule over his people and to destroy his enemies. He will not stop until his enemies have been made a footstool on which he may rest his feet, quoting Psalm 110. He intends to rule over the nations of the world. Psalm 2, verse 8. Uh, During 2020, which has clearly been an unusual year, and with so much confusion and opinions running high and wide, I have personally latched on to a mantra, and it's this. It's allow your eyes to believe what is true. (laughs) What I physically see is a better determiner of what is reality than like a Facebook meme or an impassioned political opinion in the local or national paper. And here's what I've seen in 28 chapters in the book of Acts. God is on mission to redeem his elect people through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the absolute duty, yes, duty of every follower of Jesus Christ to proclaim the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the duty, yes, the duty of every Christian to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. If you'd ask Paul, was the viper bite worth it to proclaim the gospel? He would say yes. Paul, were the chains worth it for Christ? The answer is yes. Was the shipwreck worth it, Paul? Yes. Was the stoning in Acts worth it, Paul? The answer is yes. Was the beating with the whips worth it, Paul, for Christ? The answer is yes. After Paul arrived in Rome, it says he was in prison for two years. Two years of being restricted. And what was he doing in prison? We don't read that he wallowed. We don't read that he complained, that he grumbled, that he gossiped. Nope. Here's verse 31, the last verse in the book of Acts. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, Paul had may have been hindered to travel, but the gospel message surely was not restricted. As long as Paul could open his mouth, he had something to say about Jesus. 
And I just wonder to myself, Sean Powers, when you talk out loud, are you more concerned with COVID, mass, politics, sports, the weather, or are you more concerned with Jesus? I'm pouring it back on me because I'm feeling convicted right now reading that particular verse. Acts is written in a way where lives are traced. And we have traced the life of Peter at the beginning of Acts and Paul in the middle and the end of Acts in particular. And we should not end Acts, Acts thinking to ourselves, oh man, I need to be more like Peter, Paul. I need to become more like one of those you know, super Christians. Now, while I do think Peter and Paul are examples of the Christian life that we can emulate as they emulate Christ, yes. However, each person should turn the page from Acts 28, verse 31 and realize they are now a part of Acts 29. I mentioned that at the very beginning of the sermon. Paul is dead. Peter is dead. Now, their souls are with the Lord, but they're not on this earth. God has you, Christian. He desires to use you. The teaching about the hope of Israel that goes to the entire world is with you now. Proclaiming the kingdom of God continues with you. At this point, God has determined that Acts 29 is being written by your devotion and allegiance to Jesus Christ and Jesus' kingdom. The story has not stopped, and it will not stop until Jesus returns. Now, the question is, for all of us, do your actions reflect your faith, and do your faith ref- reflect your actions? Do your actions reflect your love for Christ? You might say, my faith in Christ seems so small and weak, therefore my actions will be small and weak. The answer is that to that is... God is an expert in growing a small and weak faith. He is an expert in increasing faith and hope in a weary soul. God just wants you to know, just wants you to know that if you're willing to come and receive from Him, He'll help you grow. So if you feel weary right now, it's like, God, I just, how do I do this? Just, He wants you to come to Him. You might say, I'm a sinner. How could God ever use someone like me? I know I've said that many of times in my life. Well, God is in the business of taking the worst of sinners and making him or her a trophy of amazing grace. Your sin is a barrier to being used by God because you may allow it to be a barrier to being used by God. The fact is this, God wants you and all your wickedness and sin to see the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ at the cross. When your focus is on Christ, you will operate out of a place of hope and peace and not condemnation. You might object, how could I possibly live up to the expectations of Christ? We're just Peter and Paul, right? How can I even do that? The answer is, when it comes to Peter and Paul, you probably can't. When it comes to Christ, you definitely can't. No one can live up to the expectations of Christ. But that is kind of the point of the gospel. You need the righteousness of Christ because of your sin. 
And you need the Holy Spirit to help you walk out in this world and to tell people about Christ. You desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. That's why we use language sometimes that I'm a needy beggar. Yeah, I'm a needy beggar because I need Jesus every single day. This isn't a one and done thing. I got saved and now I go on with my life. No, I need Jesus every single day. Faith in Jesus is how you get up every day and live for him. Faith in Christ is the reason why God delights in you and delights to use you. Without Christ, your efforts will ultimately fail. But your faith is foundational to living out the Acts 29 life. I want to end with this encouragement as the calendar turns to 2021. I don't know what 2021 has for you. I just don't know what it has for me. I don't know how long COVID is going to be around. I don't know what circumstances will permeate your home in 2021. Here's what I do know. We can step into 2021 in faith, clinging to our, yes, there's that word again, our hope in Christ. We can move forward into 2021 knowing that God is on mission. His unstoppable and everlasting kingdom is moving forward. We can step into 2021 in faith, living out the principles that we've seen in Acts. Namely, having a desperate desire to tell others about Jesus Christ. If you want to mature, here would be the challenge for me and for you. If you want to mature in your faith in Jesus Christ in 2021, here's what you can do. Pray to God to grow in your desire for the lost. Like, that's what we want to be about as a church. We want to grow in our desire for those who don't know Christ. You could pray that to God. Pray for opportunities to tell others about the amazing grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can step forward in faith, not knowing the outcome of your Christian witness, but knowing that God is faithful. God is faithful to fulfill his good purposes through you. And is that not the book of Acts? God using men and women to declare the gospel for his good purposes. That is Acts for his kingdom. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.